0: Number 89 Pacific Mutual Life Insurance Company versus Cleopatra Hazlip. Mr. Beckman, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court: This matter is here on writ of
1: certiorari to review a judgment of the Alabama Supreme Court. That judgment affirmed an award of punitive damages against the petitioner, Pacific Mutual Life Insurance Company, on a respondeat superior basis or fraud committed by a sales agent in collecting and pocketing premiums on a policy of group health insurance issued by another carrier, Union Fidelity Life Insurance Company, and also on individual policies of life insurance issued by Pacific Mutual. The insurance was issued to cover employees of the City of Roosevelt, which is a small town in Alabama. During the course of the trial, all counts asserted by plaintiffs alleging any wrongdoing against Pacific Mutual directly were dismissed and abandoned, so that, so that the sole basis of the award was responding at superior for the fraud of the agent. The major portion of the award went to Mrs. Haslip because she incurred medical expenses during a period which would have been covered by the union fidelity policy had the agent not misappropriated the premiums. She was apparently unable to pay the hospital expenses, and a judgment was entered against her. And that appears to explain the great disparity in the award that went to her and the relatively nominal awards that went to the other plaintiffs.
2: Now, I suppose we don't know the breakdown of compensatory and punitive damages here.
1: Uh, Justice O'Connor, under, under Alabama law, the punitive damage award to Mrs. Haslip would have been at least $840,000 because the maximum, um, she had a prayer for $3 million of punitive damages and a prayer for her actual damages plus emotional distress damages of $200,000. The award to her was $1,040,000 so that if we assumed that she got the full g- general actual economic damages and emotional distress damages for which she prayed, the punitive award still would have been at least $840,000, and that would have been the computation under Alabama law. The plaintiffs themselves submitted the case to the Alabama Supreme Court. Excuse me,
3: why, why do you say that would be the computation under Alabama law? Is it, uh, is it impossible under law to give, uh, under Alabama law to give a plaintiff more than the plaintiff prays for it?
1: Yes, and under the cases that were cited, in, in fact, by the respondents here, the, that would be the computation of the award. It would be at least $840,000 because the actual other damages would not exceed $200,000. And as I said, the plaintiffs here submitted... Are there Alabama
3: cases that set aside judgments for more than was prayed for? No.
1: It is my understanding that there are, Justice Scalia, I cannot cite them to you at this point. The the plaintiffs uh, response I mean,
3: it makes sense to say she asked for so much, and and, and, and you subtract that from the total, but the jury could have said in the jury room, couldn't it? Uh, Well, she asked for that much, but we really think that her emotional distress was even more than that, and we'll give her even more.
1: Well, that could happen, but they would have been limited to the prayer under Alabama law. Okay. Now, and again, Are you going I, to
2: supply the court with citations to establish that proposition?
1: I will do that, Justice O'Connor. And I would cite the court to the case cited by the respondents in the respondents' brief, which laid out uh, their position that the award would have been $840,000 and not more. Yeah, because, as I stated, the... the Respondents, the plaintiffs, presented this court case to the Alabama Supreme Court as an award of $1,040,000. Does
4: that mean just, uh, that we should sort of treat the case as though the actual damage? I guess there were some, some actual pecuniary damages, a few thousand dollars, too, weren't there? So maybe there was about 210 of actual damages and 840 of the others, so it's a four, 4 to 1 ratio. All
1: of, the, all of the plaintiffs in the case had a total economic damage as something about $3,900. And then the total award was something in the area of $1,077,000.
4: Right. But as to this particular uh, respondent, uh, it's roughly, the, we, we can treat the cases of the punitive damage worth roughly four times the actual damage. Uh, yes, Justice Stevens.
1: Pacific Mutual uh, has petitioned this Court to vacate the judgment of the Alabama court, and the award of punitive damages as violating the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Of the issues that were briefed and submitted here on behalf of the petitioner, I would like to focus my argument on on three central issues. First, that the open-ended, standardless discretion delegated by Alabama law to the jury here to determine whether or not to punish Pacific Mutual for the agent's fraud, and if so, how much, violated due process. Second, that the system of judicial review in place in Alabama did not cure those violations. And third, that Responding Act Superior, upon the record in this case, was not a constitutionally permissible basis for imposing punishment on Pacific Mutual.
0: You say not a constitutionally permissible basis for imposing punishment on Pacific Mutual. Are you saying it was not a constitutionally permissible basis for imposing any sort of liability or just just what you call punishment? Just the punitive award. You, there's a different constitutional standard for Respondiat Superior, in your view, when you're talking about punitive damages. The well, petitioner submits that that is correct, Your Honor. The,
1: in, for compensatory damages under Respondiat Superior, the, the rationale of it is that where one of two innocent people should suffer, because of acts of an agent, wrongful acts of an agent, the principal who put the agent in a position to cause the injury should bear the loss. But <clears throat> imposing punishment on, on a principal who, as in this case, was in fact a victim of an effect embezzlement was not a rational basis for, for punishment.
4: May I just that, that argument me? Supposing you have a corporation, the president of the corporation does a lot of things secretly the directors don't know or the stockholders don't know, and you, you impose a criminal fine for violating the Sherman Act or something. Is that unconstitutional?
1: There's, there, there, there is, uh, that is a different situation than we have here. Uh, under the, the Sherman Act, Act for, for example, or, or a regulatory program, the company is under a direct obligation to comply with the law. and. If, in fact, <clears throat> fines or treble damages under the Sherman Act are sought to be imposed upon it because of a violation by the company, and the company comes in and tries to defend, saying, well, high-level management of the responsible people didn't authorize those acts or know that they were going on, and the courts have, have held that if that action is taken in the course of the company's business and to further its profits... The company management can't come in and say, well, we didn't know what was going on, and avoid liability. But the situation is different, I submit, where the agent, even a high-level officer, is affirmatively acting against the company's interest and is, in fact, as here, embezzling well, stealing fixed, the
4: money. Maybe they fixed prices at a level that caused them to lose money. That wouldn't be a defense, would it? But they
1: were still acting to benefit the corporation and seeking to increase its profits by violating the law. I mean, here... There was no possible way that Pacific Mutual could have benefited from the agents' thefts of the premiums, and those thefts were actually premiums of a, due to another company. But both of those
4: companies had liability imposed on them under Alabama law for their policies. So Wouldn't that, also, that argument also justify saying you can't recover civil da- uh, even actual damages? But but there you have,
1: again, an innocent third party and the innocent company, and the company put the agent in a position to cause the harm. So for compensatory damages, vicarious liability has some purpose. But to impose punishment on a company that has had a theft or an embezzlement uh, from it uh, doesn't forward any rational goal of retribution or deterrence.
2: Mr. Beckman, do you have any case authority from this court to support this uh, rather curious position?
1: Only the the authority that we have cited in the briefing that has been submitted.
3: Mr. Beckman, if if I understand the position you're taking on this point, if uh, if an officer of a corporation uh, is uh, secretly uh, Um, secretly favors uh, polluting the environment and at great expense to the company, not in its interests, but at at some expense to the company, pollutes, intentionally causes the company to pollute the environment. Uh, A penalty could not be imposed upon the company because the officer was not acting in the company's interest. That's, That's your position. Even though the company put this officer in a position where he could do this, um, you know, put him in charge of all of its chemicals so that he was in a position to dirty the earth, which is what he wanted to do, you couldn't punish the company for that.
1: That is a somewhat different case than those that we have been relying on, such as the Standard Oil of Texas versus the United States case, where you had the three employees stealing oil from Standard and then selling it back. It's different
3: it from most cases, but, it's, yes. but, but, but it tests what I understood to be your response to Justice Stevens. As I understood your response to Justice Stevens, you think the crucial factor is whether uh, the, uh, whether you can impose punishment upon the principal depends upon whether the agent was acting in the principal's interest. Wasn't, wasn't that your, uh, your line?
1: Yes, and, 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 and right. if you are suggesting that you're... So the then own, your answer
3: to my hypothetical has to be that you cannot punish the corporation.
1: I would suggest that's correct, Justice Scalia, and, and that would be because if you had, a, a, in effect, a disloyal employee trying to sabotage the company by mm-hmm. putting in procedures which would, in fact, cause the emissions beyond EPA standards, for example... Mm-hmm. It would really not forward goals mm-hmm. of retribution and deterrence to punish the company because it had that employee doing that. It would
3: deter that. the company from putting such a nut in such a position, wouldn't it?
1: But That would be direct liability, not respond to that superior liability. If, if you're suggesting that the, the basis of the punishment then would be that the company had not controlled or was this agent or had not properly monitored them,
0: Mr. Beckman, we've been questioning you about what you say was your third uh, point. Uh, Perhaps you'd like to get to your first and second point. I would indeed, Your Honor. Uh, Justice, uh, Mr. Chief
1: Justice, and with respect to, to Pacific Mutual's basic due process point presented here, Alabama law delegated complete discretion to the jury to determine whether or not to punish Pacific Mutual for the agent's fraud, and if so, how much. The Alabama legislature had never established any limits on permissible punishment for conduct or for punitive damages generally, and the decisions of the Alabama Supreme Court recognized that in Alabama there was no legal measure which limited these awards.
5: Assume that we're just talking about uh, punishing the agent himself. Forget the Respondent Superior problem. Are there any standards uh, that you could cite to the court that would suffice for giving punitive damages against the agent himself here
1: yes one well two two come to mind, and one that would not would not work if you 're talking about overall standards for limiting punitive damages awards, which I understand to be your question there would it, I'm sure there is a continuum of, of solutions which would be acceptable and meet to process requirements. But one, which certainly would, would be for the legislature to take the various categories of conduct which are subject to this umbrella penalty, which is the whole spectrum of torts and tortious breach of contract in Alabama, and define the categories of conduct and, and specify the penalties for those, those specified items of conduct, much as in a penal code. The other could be, and still meet, I think, the concerns which have ex- been expressed by some members of this Court and with respect to punitive damages, and, and have, try to have an umbrella remedy, a, a situation where you had either a fraction or a multiple of actual economic harm caused which would cause the the award to have some reasonable relationship to, or a necessary relationship to actual harm, plus attorney's fees to take care of small cases which might not otherwise be brought, and I would suggest also a cap to limit even the amount of, of a multiple of actual damages to take care of the cases such as cited in the amicus brief of the national accounting firms, where there would be a large corporation where a lot of money was involved but a very small degree of fault.
2: Mr. Beckman, the Alabama court has handed down uh, in the green oil case a list of factors to be used on appellate review of punitive damages cases. Is that correct?
1: That is correct, Justice. Now, in your
2: view, if the green oil factors were spelled out to the trial jury that fixed the punitive damages, would that adequately serve to guide the jury's discretion?
1: No, Justice O'Connor, it would not. <clears throat> those, those factors are, are highly judgmental, subjective, and, and would not remove from the jury the personal discretion to impose punishment on a virtually limitless amount. The, the Hammond and green oil factors would would not cure the lack of, of an upper limit, limiting the amount of the award. Do would would
2: c- you take the position here today that the only possible way to meet the due process concerns that you express is to set a dollar limit?
1: Not necessarily a dollar limit if a multiple plus a cap approach were taken, as I suggested in answer to Justice Kennedy's question. But, That's but, a
2: form of a dollar limitation.
1: Yes, just... Uh, just That's all
2: you're saying would suffice. Yes, the,
1: the, yes. The, the Hammond factors, um, there's really only three of them that are at all substantive. And the first is that the award should bear some reasonable relationship to actual damages. But in practice, that has proven to be a meaning, meaningless test because any, any relationship can be and has been held to be reasonable. And further in Alabama, at least, about the same time the Hammond case was decided, the Alabama Supreme Court overruled an an earlier decision which had required a a required relationship between actuals and punitives and adopted a rule that there was no necessary relationship between actuals and punitives. And the second Hammond factor is to consider the reprehensibility of the conduct. but That is really only putting the indifferent words what the jury here was instructed to consider, which was the character and degree of the wrong, and, and it is just as vague. And in fact, this court noted that, that reprehensibility was not a suitable or a sufficiently precise basis for imposing punishment in the Gyashio versus Pennsylvania case. The third rel- relatively substantive Hammond factor was the wealth of the defendant. But the wealth of the defendant factor, when you take that into account, really only ensures that a large corporation with a jury argument that the award has to be enough to hurt and sting is going to ensure that there is, a, in effect, a multimillion-dollar award even if there is a very small degree of fault. And, and I submit on behalf of the petitioner that those factors just would not adequately control the jury's discretion. Mr.
3: Beckman, suppose I had a criminal statute uh, that uh, said uh, for this offense... Uh, the court may impose uh, a fine up to full confiscation of all property of the defendant. You you know that the penalty is everything you own if you get convicted. Would would, would that that comport with due process?
1: And then it's up to to the judge to decide, you know. Yes, I think I understand your question, and that is that you have a penal code section which specifies an uh offense. It says that the maximum penalty for that specified offense is up to, uh, in a sense, a corroborado action. We will take all, confiscate the Charter of the Corporation and, and all of its assets. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would uh, suggest that that would meet due process, but that is different than the punitive damages situation, because there the legislature has acted to tailor a remedy to a defined offense, but with punitive damages, you have this whole spectrum of torts and tortious breach of contract and with an umbrella that, that fits it all. But the legislature has, in effect, said for each of those offenses,
3: for any, for any civil offense, you are on notice that what you can be penalized is all of your assets.
1: Well, I suggest so Why that isn't
3: that, you know, it, it's an upper limit now. You may not like how high an upper limit it is, but it is certainly there. You know... When you commit any tort, that, uh, that that's uh, that's the penalty that uh, that may exist.
1: Well, that would be as if, and the situation really is as if. For example, the Alabama Penal Code, which would cover everything from minor traffic offenses to first-degree murder, had a single penalty section, which said for any violation of this code, the maximum penalty is capital punishment. And, and I suggest that that would not be irrational or meaningful. Well, Limit, let's take that out, or, or, of it. or even at n- least
3: place some limitations on capital punishment. I mean, but,
1: well, it even can, even, can only be
3: imposed, imposed for murder. But let's say, let's say I mean, for all criminal offenses, it'll be up to
1: the up to the judge. Uh, and uh, uh, up to life imprisonment. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest that that would not be a meaningful or realistic mm-hmm. penalty for 99.9 percent of the offenses in the code. Mm-hmm. Similarly, that confiscation of all the assets would not be a meaningful or or really reasonable. Uh, penalty for 99.9% of the offenses and punitive damages. Because, so,
3: because it, because what, because of a lack of procedural due process? Is, uh, is
1: because that? it is so high that it wouldn't be fair notice of what the actual penalties would be. I mean, it's, it's like having life imprisonment for a traffic offense. It wouldn't take the discretion away from the, the sentencing authority to give virtually any sentence for a minor offense. And there would be no real notice to anyone of what the penalty might be. And it would certainly not cure the open-ended discretion of the sentencer in that situation.
4: Mr. Beckman, can I ask kind of a, a, a long-range long question? Are you c- claiming in this case that the Alabama procedure is kind of invalid on its face, and therefore, regardless of the fact that this particular case, every punitive damage award in Alabama should be set aside? Or do you depend on the facts of your case?
1: I suggest that in any case in which the jury was instructed, as it was in this case, right. due process requirements would not be met. And to that extent, the answer to your question would be yes.
4: And then the other thing that's running through my mind, to the extent that you've suggested that maybe we could craft rules like a ceiling and special procedures and all, are you suggesting that those proceed, that we would write a rule for the future that would not be retroactive to, to pass awards, or, or, or we, we don't have a retroactivity problem here?
1: I would suggest there would be no retroactivity problem, yeah, and that even helps. that this Court would not have to craft rules. I mean, yeah. The state legislatures are certainly free to experiment with any number of possible solutions to
4: But until they meet the minimum that you think are required, all these awards would be invalid? Yes, Justice yeah. Stevens, but that is our position.
5: Right. I, I take it you have no problem with uh, the theory of punitive damages, then. It's just the standard. Suppose you have a manufacturer of uh, children's play equipment. Manufacturer A uses a rope uh, because he thinks it's safe. Manufacturer B uses the same rope because it's much cheaper and he knows it's very unsafe. Uh, two children are injured. Uh, the injuries are exactly the same. Should the uh, recovery be the same in each case?
1: Well, I would suggest not, Justice Kennedy, if, if in fact guilt is personal and, and, and if penalties are to be imposed because of, uh, of guilt, uh, as they in fact generally are not in punitive damages
4: cases.
5: So you have, you have no trouble with the proposition that in the second case where there was uh, an intentional substitution of an inferior... Uh, fabric or, or or piece of equipment, you have no trouble at all with that child recovering substantially more, even though his injuries were the same?
1: No, and, and Justice Kennedy, and that is because punitive damages are not a matter of compensation, and, and, and I suggest that it is not the, the perspective to look at them from, from any entitlement of someone injured to recover them. I mean, supposedly they are imposed to punish and deter because of wrongful conduct. The, the plaintiff gets them as a mere windfall.
5: And, and you have no quarrel with that element in the law?
1: Well, I have a quarrel with it, but to, to seriously quarrel with it would require a position that there could be no civil penalties in, in any case, and that has not been the history of the decisions of this court. Back to the uh, basic due process point that I was discussing, I said the, the legislature and neither the courts nor the legislature in Alabama has set any limits for punishment. The jury here was told that it had complete discretion to either punish or not punish as it chose. And with respect to fixing the amount of the of the award, it was told to...
3: Excuse me, that's been going on since 1791, as I understand it. Do, 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 you, have any, do you have any cases that, that have imagined in the past that this violates the due process clause? And how, you know, who, who whispers in my ear that it, it is in violation of due process when it's been going on since 1791 and nobody has thought so?
1: I suggest, Justice Scalia, that the situation here is, is essentially the same as it was in Williams versus Illinois, where you had the practice of which had extended from medieval England down through the United States from the time of the, of, of the Revolution and the adoption of the Constitution to the time of that decision of, of increasing penalties of prisoners beyond the maximum allowed by statute when they were unable to pay fines or court costs. and. There, as here, if that had been analyzed and looked at, the court would probably have found that it violated due process, just as I submit that if mm-hmm. punitive damages the procedures...
3: What, what was the basis of that, of that decision, was it?
1: Uh, that the basis yeah. of the decision was that it was a violation of due process to sentence to allow a prisoner to be required to serve time beyond the maximum allowed by the statute mm-hmm. because he was unable to pay a fine or court costs. Mm-hmm. And... The court recognized that even though that had been the practice from medieval England through all the history of the United States, it still violated due process mm-hmm. and recognized that it had only come to the attention of the court because mm-hmm. that practice's impact on society had changed radically. Mm-hmm. And I submit that, that but that's this, the same but this thing. This one has
3: come to the attention of this court before, and this court has, uh, has opinions that have, that have
1: approved it before, doesn't it? The <clears throat> The due process validity of punitive damages has not been decided by the Court of men directly before it. The court has, in some prior opinions, recognized the doctrine and, and assumed or accepted it, but it, the issues had not been placed before it for, for an actual determination. And I see that I am about out of time, and with the court 's permission, if there 's no further questions i 'd reserve the balance of my time for a rebuttal
0: very well mr Beckman mr ennis we 'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it
6: please the court. Alabama provides two levels of protection for defendants facing the possibility of punitive damages. First, the jury sets the award pursuant to the traditional common law standards. Then, trial and appellate courts independently reassess the award pursuant to even more protective standards. Let me talk first about the jury instructions. The jury was instructed, with respect to the state's purpose in punitive damage awards, that they are to punish and deter, that they are not to compensate the plaintiff, or not to be a windfall to the plaintiff. And the jury was instructed that the amount of the award must be tailored to the character and the degree of the wrong, as shown by the evidence in that particular case. The Civic Mutual did not object to those common law instructions at the trial, and did not request any more specific instructions at the trial. Those common law standards by themselves certainly satisfy traditional notions of fair play and substantial justice. They have been used and approved by courts throughout the land for 200 years, and no court has ever found them violative of due process. Despite enormous pressure on state legislatures and Congress in the past 15 years, those are still the standards... That are used in nearly every state today. These standards, as the court recognized in Dave v. Woodworth, were well established before the due process clause was adopted. In fact, in another Alabama case, Lewis Pizitz, decided by this court in 1927, this court upheld those very common law standards and unanimously rejected precisely the same due process challenge. Pacific Mutual is raising again that these common law standards gave the jury, quote, unbridled discretion to fix the punitive amount, quote, without any method of ascertainment and without any limit to the amount it may impose, close quote. That argument was rejected unanimously in Pizzitz. Earlier, in Standard Oil v. Missouri, this court also upheld against due process attack a punitive fine where there were no standards for determining the amount and no maximum. That was a state antitrust fine, but the court re- relied for its decision expressly on the analogy to punitive damage proceedings. I think that there is simply no anchor in the text of the Due Process Clause, and there's certainly no established societal norm from which the court could divine or develop new standards. In, that, in this circumstance, where these standards have been used and thought to be fair for over 200 years, and where even today Pacific Mutual does not suggest specific standards for determining what is the right amount, merely a cap on whatever amount is awarded.
2: Well, let's say a jury is instructed by the trial court to, that it may find uh, punitive damages, and it's uh, within their discretion to make that determination
6: purely, wholly within their discretion. Yes, sir. Well, that that would be Do you more... you think up- that
2: would raise any due process concern about standardless discretion?
6: I think, Justice O'Connor, that even such minimal instructions as that mm-hmm. would satisfy the due process clause as That's that That's a very concern.
2: strange notion of what due process means, then, isn't it? I think not... Doesn't, doesn't uh, the clause uh, suggest to us that wholly standardless discretion in these matters uh, is uh, unauthorized?
6: Well, Justice O'Connor, I think not for two reasons. First, this Court's due process decisions in the past have always applied with respect to clarity in the conduct that can trigger a punishment of of any type. There must be clear notice of the conduct. That was certainly true in this case. Pacific Mutual was punished for intentional fraud. There is no claim that the conduct at issue in this case was vague. Second, even in the case of capital punishment, in the McGoutha decision, this court ruled that the Due Process Clause does not require more specific standards for determining the sentence of death. In that case, the jury was instructed that it had, quote, absolute discretion to decide whether to sentence to death or not. And there was absolutely no legislative or judicial guidance as to whether it imposed that penalty. The Court decided that as a matter of due process, that did not violate the Constitution. The next year, in Furman, the Court, of course, did decide, under the higher, more rigorous standards of the Eighth Amendment, that capital cases do require guided discretion. But the Due Process Clause does not, as this Court ruled in Pizzitz and ruled instead in Oral versus Missouri. Now, let me turn to the second level of protection that Alabama gives Defendants in punitive damages case. Excuse me.
3: Before you get off the first, I, I don't, uh, I don't quibble with your uh, assertion that that has uh, been uh, been accepted for, for many years. I, but I, but I do. You really, you really think it's fair to call it a standard? I mean, you you say that the standard is telling the jury essentially, be sure that the punishment fits the crime. That that is what you describe as a standard.
6: Yeah, that is actually... It's
3: just like telling them, don't punish too much and don't punish too little, punish just enough.
6: That is actually, the the, the hypothetical that Justice O'Connor posed is actually uh, less protective of defendants than the traditional common law standards. The traditional common law standards do more than that. They say, here's the purpose of punitive damage awards, to punish and deter, and they uh, say that you must base your amount on the character and the degree of wrongdoing as shown by the evidence in this case.
3: Well, of course. In other words... Don't punish too much for, for, you know, how bad the wrong was.
6: Yes, I think that that, that standard, which was the standard before the court in visits and mm-hmm. all the other cases cited in our brief, and all the, the, the cases that have been upheld over the 200-year history in which that standard has been used, uh, yeah. do find that that's... I, not I, I would rely
3: more on the 200 years than I would upon the standard. Well.
6: Uh, Justice, Justice Scalia, let me turn to the, the next level of protection. Uh, Council,
5: before you get there, so suppose the rule uh, in the state were that one out of every four uh, defendants is subject to a punitive damage award, and it just rotates based on the docket number.
6: No, I think that would certainly uh, not satisfy due process, because that would go to the, the conduct issue. That
5: punitive uh, damages- suppose, suppose it were shown that, in effect, that's what's happening in our legal system?
6: Well, I don't think there has been any... I suppose I think, it were. Well, if it were, then that would be a different question entirely, if about an arbitrary and unequal application of uh, a supposedly neutral principle so of law.
5: If it could be established that, in a particular state, uh, there was simply no rhyme or reason at all to the award of punitive damages, you would then think there would be a due process problem?
6: I think it would be a different issue from the issue posed by the facts of this case. Would there be
5: a due process problem?
6: I think, Your Honor, that if it could be shown through empirical evidence that there wasn't just an occasional uh, aberrational decision, but that in a substantial number of cases it was entirely arbitrary and fortuitous whether a particular defendant got hit with a punitive damage award or not, That would raise a due process question with respect to the conduct that can subject one to a punitive damage award. But that is not this case
5: at all. Wouldn't it raise due process standards because uh, we've lost confidence in the operation of a system to operate with predictability, with fairness?
6: Justice Kennedy, let me say that there is no basis in the record of this case or this Court, too, have lost confidence in the punitive Well, but I'm, I'm talking about
5: what the standards of due process are. And you seem to indicate that predictability, uh, evenness, fairness, proportionality in Alabama are, are, today, all, are, are all some, some indices of due process. And, and you indicated at the outset you don't think there's any due process standard, I had thought with reference to the jury. Now, I know you're going to rush to the second point, but let's just talk about the jury instruction. Isn't there, isn't there some due process component that requires predictability?
6: I think there is a due process component that requires predictability with respect to the nature of conduct that can trigger a punitive award. Pacific Mitchell has not cited any cases which take the very big next step, and rule that there must also be predictability with respect to the precise punishment that a defendant can incur when they violate a clear conduct norm. And there is no case in the history of this Court's jurisprudence that I'm aware of that takes that step. Uh, (coughs) What about ex post facto cases? Well, Your Honor, I'm talking right now with respect to civil cases. This is not, obviously, a criminal case where the ex post facto facto clause would apply. The ex post facto clause also, I think, uh, is different because it requires, it applies to conduct that was not criminal at the time of the crime.
3: Mr. Ennis, would would you apply your uh, principle that unpredictability uh, produces a violation of the due process clause to uh, substantive liability as well? so that if one can show that, uh, G lawyers really never know what's going to happen when you send a case to the jury, uh, except to the extent that it hinges upon factors that really should have no bearing, like whether the defendant has a deep pocket or not, if, if you could show that, then, uh, then the whole system would be infected. Uh, or, or, or does this just apply to, uh, uh, to the amount of the liability and not to liability itself, which would seem very peculiar? You'd extend that to, to,
6: to the whole system, I assume. Well, Justice Scalia, I'm not entirely sure I understand your question, but... uh,
3: What I'm asking is, if it is true that that the amount of damages must be predictable in order for due process to be roughly predictable... I don't think that's true. I thought that was your answer to Justice Kennedy, that if the system were entirely unpredictable and it seemed... Whether
6: a defendant would be subjected to any punitive damage award at all, if it was just fortuitous whether every fourth defendant gets punitive awards against them. Right. That would go to the conduct that would trigger a punitive award, and I think that would implicate a due process concern.
3: And, and the same would be true about whether the jury finds liability at all. I think the same would not I mean, be. D- do you think jury verdicts are predictable in that sense? Do you uh, has that ever been a requirement?
6: I think that it's it's not a requirement that jury verdicts be predictable. That's the point I was trying to make. This court's decisions have never required that due process requires predictability of the amount of a particular punishment. But they have to be just non-arbitrary. They just have to have some rational basis and not be arbitrary. That's correct. And and Alabama today ensures that it is not an arbitrary process. The Hammond-Hornsby standard of review, which the Alabama Supreme Court has been adopting since 1986, expressly provides that jury verdicts will be independently reassessed by trial and appellate courts in order to determine whether the amount set by the jury is more than would be necessary to accomplish society's goals of punishment and deterrence. That test has actually been advocated by the insurance and industry amicus brief supporting Pacific Mutual as a workable and appropriate test that will protect against arbitrary and
0: irrational punitive awards. That's the test that Alabama applies today. Was that test applied in this case? Yes, it was, Your Honor. The, uh, do you think the trial, the trial judge's uh, memorandum really uh, reflected what the test is supposed to reflect?
6: Well, the trial judge's memorandum does uh, refer to the Hammond opinion and does state that the uh, award was reviewed by the trial court under Hammond. Uh, The important thing to understand is it is not just the trial court, but the Alabama Supreme Court itself that independently applies these factors. The Alabama Supreme Court has itself reduced or set aside many punitive damage awards, even when the trial court thought they were appropriate. For example, one of the Hammond-type reviews requires a comparability review to ensure fairness of punitive amounts across a range of similar cases. Using that comparability review, which is not equally available to the trial courts because they are not as aware as the Alabama Supreme Court of the range of cases. The Alabama Supreme Court has regularly reduced punitive damage awards when it finds that the amount is outside that reasonable range. Just within the past 10 days, the Alabama Supreme Court has done that twice.
7: The argument is that uh, punitive damages don't need all these protections of these specific factors that the Alabama Supreme Court has imposed. Uh, and uh, there doesn't need to be appellate review. Uh, Justice White... Uh, there's just no due process problem at all.
6: Justice White, I think there is no due process problem at all, simply with the common law standards and, and, and standards for review. But in this case...
7: Well, what is, there, is, there, is there some due process uh, uh, <clears throat> requirement that the uh, uh, punitive damages not be excessive?
6: Yes, Your Honor. I I think that there are decisions of this Court that do impose an outer limit, regardless of the fairness of the standard. What, an outer limit like excessive? The outer limit would be under the substantive component of the due process clause that the punitive award not exceed an amount that would rationally further the State's legitimate objectives. Mm -hmm. Now, in this case, I think that... There can be no serious argument that this award violates that standard for the now You say this
7: excessiveness comes out of the due process clause? Ex- you say, how does it do that? Uh, you say that, I thought you started out saying the due process clause just doesn't read on punitive damages. I think
6: that the due process clause does not apply to whether, to predictability of the amount of the punitive damage award. I think that's right. But it does apply, you say, it it can be too great. There is, perhaps, a substantive component of the due process Well, you said
7: there was a while ago.
6: Well, Your Honor, I think that the cases that established such a substantive limit on what is state economic regulation are very old cases and may not uh, be good law today. But for purposes of this case, I'm not challenging those old cases in which the Court did say that a civil fine or civil penalty which is wholly arbitrary and irrational may violate the substantive component of the due process. Do you know of any
7: states uh, around that, that, uh, that not only agree with that uh, notion but have set down some uh, more specific standards than just excessiveness or irrationality? Well, Have they, have they put down some... Overall limits or some proportionality rules? Or
6: Your Honor, in the past, since 1986, a majority of the states have actually legislatively revisited their punitive damages systems. But only nine states today impose caps on the upper limit. Well, of what a punitive about award. Nine states put caps on, but how about others
7: set some standards other than just these vague rather vague standards.
6: We have cited in our, uh, actually in our opposition to certiorari, the four states that have legislatively established some standards. Those standards are remarkably identical to the, the standards that Alabama applies as a matter of common law. They are remarkably similar to the Hammond-Hornsby standards of review. So far as I'm aware... I gather
7: yeah, you don't think the due process clause need to go any farther than just to say... Uh, to a jury uh, or or to an appellate court, the award uh, should not be excessive. you think that requires any more
6: specific guidelines than that? No, Your Honor, I don't think it does. In this case, let me make very clear that the standard of review that was used by the Alabama Supreme Court is much more protective than the traditional common law standard of review that was at issue in Browning, Ferris, and Banker's Life. There, the Court applied the traditional standard of whether the verdict was the result of bias, passion, prejudice, or corruption. Here, the Alabama Supreme Court applies a much more protective standard, and it will explicitly reduce or set aside a punitive award, even if that award was not the result of bias, passion, or prejudice, if the award is greater than is reasonably necessary to accomplish society's objectives of punishment and deterrence. And it measures whether the award exceeds that test by application of the seven standards in the Hammond-Hornsby standard of review. 15 cases since 1986. the Alabama Supreme Court has reduced or set aside jury awards under that standard. This is a standard with teeth. It is a meaningful, meaningful constraint. out of how many.
0: Court. Uh, f- in 15, uh, it is set on the side. Out of how many punitive damages cases is? I'm not
6: sure of the exact total, Your Honor, but I, I think it is at least 15, and I'd be happy in a post-trial submission to try to get that information to the court.
0: Thank you.
6: How, how
3: much of a penalty? Let's assume you have a defendant with a net worth of one billion dollars. Uh, uh, how much is necessary to deter that that defendant? Uh, I mean. The, the standard you recite sounds very nice. Does it? Does it mean anything? How, how do I go about deciding as a as a judge of the Alabama Supreme Court or any other court?
6: Well, Your Honor, there are, that it
3: is no more than is necessary to deter.
6: Your Honor, there are at least two parts of an answer to that question. The first is you can't determine how much is appropriate to deter based simply on knowledge of the wealth of the defendant. Right. The jury is instructed they must look at the character and the degree of the wrongdoing under the Hammond standards. Re- reviewing courts are instructed to look at how much knowledge. Oh, so it, so, so it isn't
3: just uh, just what's necessary to deter, but also how bad is the thing that you That's want to right. deter? Right,
6: character and the degree of the wrongdoing. That's right.
3: So so it's not just how much is necessary to deter, but also how much do you hate what was done? That's right. It's a okay. societal okay. judgment. That's right. correct. And now, how do you decide how much you hate what was done? Well. as a judge, in in order to apply this standard.
6: Your Honor, it's, it's very much the process that judges go through and juries go through every day in deciding difficult questions that are juries, not Juries, I would agree,
3: but, but, but is this a really a, a, legal, you know, a legal determ- legally determinable uh, issue, how much we hate this particular act? and. Uh...
6: Your Honor, the Alabama Supreme Court looks at those factors. For example, whether the defendant had continuing notice of the particular wrongdoing at issue, whether it took corrective steps or not, there are very specific standards cited page 32-33 of our brief, which the courts used to reach that decision. In, in a recent case, for example, the Alabama Supreme Court noted that the degree of the wrongdoing was uh, sufficient to merit a punitive award by itself, but noted, as the jury does not know, that that same defendant had been hit with a punitive award in another case, and therefore decided, that it was not necessary to have a second punitive award against that defendant for the same conduct. That would not rationally further the state's objectives, and so it set aside the punitive award entirely based upon that factor. The Alabama Supreme Court does the same thing with respect to comparability reviews. It says to itself, all right, here's another insurance bad faith case. The punitive award was set at this amount. We have had seven of these insurance bad faith cases in the past three years, and here's what seems to be a reasonable range of punishment in these cases. We think this one exceeds that reasonable range and reduces it accordingly. It is not a a standard of review that simply rubber stamps the jury. Far from it. In Alabama, I think unlike any other state of which I'm aware, there is a right for a post-verdict evidentiary hearing at which the defendant can present new evidence that was never presented to the jury in, in support of reducing the punitive award. The defendant can come in and say, uh, the award should be reduced because I'm quite poor and this would absolutely bankrupt me and cripple me. The defendant can come in and say, the award should be reduced because I've already been subjected to a criminal fine for similar conduct. That kind of information would be extremely prejudicial to a jury for a jury to hear at, at the liability phase. But Alabama <laughs> courts give the defendant an evidentiary opportunity to present all relevant evidence. And then based on that evidence, the courts independently reassess. They are not simply rubber stamping jury verdicts. Uh,
7: Is it it anticipated that uh, juries uh, uh, given this kind of an instruction will often refuse to give any punitive damages?
6: Yes, Your Honor. I think that, that that whether to award punitive damages... Uh, is discretionary with the jury because it is supposed to reflect a societal judgment about whether this conduct is deserving of punishment. Uh, 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 uh,
7: some deserving of imposing something on the defendant other than compensatory. That's correct. Damages. That's correct.
6: Let me just say... And, uh, that,
7: that's just the standard the jury has. If you think this fellow really deserves it, give it, let him have it, eh?
6: No, that's not. It's quite as simple as that, no, Justice White. Well, the degree are, of the crime? The, it, how much you hate it? The standard is that before a jury can even consider whether it wants to impose a punitive amount, it must find that the conduct violates the, the, the conduct standard requisite for a punitive award. In this case, the conduct standard was intentional fraud. Mm-hmm. You can't simply no, impose punitive damages because you think somebody was a little negligent or a little sloppy. In Alabama, there must be some element of intentional wrongdoing. Once that threshold has been crossed, however, it is discretionary. You
7: don't, you, you don't think you can just be so negligent that uh, punitive damages
6: are uh, are authorized in Alabama? Not in Alabama, Your Honor. Some states do authorize punitive damages for reckless conduct for gross recklessness. This court in Smith versus Wade adopted that as the appropriate standard for actions under 1983 without requiring them. Uh, are that liability under. cases? Private liability cases, Your Honor. But Alabama product 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 liability cases in Alabama, there has to be an intentional wrongdoing element. And I'm sure some other states have uh, somewhat lesser degrees of a mental wrongdoing component, but almost well, every everybody state. intends to put out the product. Is that just enough? No, that's not enough. It's not just putting the product into commerce that's enough. There has to be an element of of wrongdoing, a mental element of, of intent to commit. And wrong. are juries told that? Yes, Your Honor.
3: It doesn't have to be an element of wrongdoing by the defendant personally, though. It can be by, by one of his agents, right? That's
6: correct, Your Honor. Uh,
3: that's, that's a strange use of intentionally uh, uh, then. I mean, I, I'm perfectly innocent. I'm, I haven't committed any fraud, and I've been negligent enough to hire somebody who commits a fraud. That's intentional wrongdoing on my part.
6: Well, let me, let me turn to that, Your Honor. First, Pacific Mutual's argument on vicarious liability is that there must, constitutionally, there must be some element of benefit to the principal. First, that issue is not before the court, because at the trial level and in the Alabama Supreme Court level, Pacific Mutual never argued that benefit is a constitutional requirement for vicarious liability. Its argument was on quite different grounds. Furthermore, this would be a very inappropriate case to consider that, because indisputably in this case, there was economic benefit to Pacific Mutual. Uh, There were at least three months of premiums on life insurance policies that Pacific Mutual received and never refunded as a result of these frauds. But turning to the merits of that vicarious liability argument, in both punitive damages cases, in antitrust cases, and even in criminal cases, this Court has expressly approved vicarious liability without either fault by the principal or benefit to the principal. Again, in the Pizzitz case, decided unanimously in 1927, the court squarely ruled that Alabama, the same system we're talking about here, could impose vicarious liability for punitive damages without fault by the principal. That was the unanimous ruling of this court. In the hydro-level case, this court even went so far as to adopt as rational and wise social policy a rule of vicarious liability for federal antitrust cases that is indistinguishable from the Alabama rule at issue here. In Hydro level, this court ruled that under the antitrust laws, a principal can be held vicariously liable for antitrust violations by an agent, even if the principal was not at all at fault and even if the principal did not benefit. Now, I know that some justices of this court dissented from Hydro level and did not think that was the wisest or most rational, the best policy choice, but the fact that the court is a court Reach that conclusion, shows that that decision is at least a rational judgment. Alabama has made that rational judgment, and it should be upheld. Finally, even in criminal cases...
3: Do I have to do it as a policy choice, Mr. Ennis? No, you don't, do Your Honor. Because I think it's the law?
6: No, you, you don't, Your Honor. Not at all. Uh, this is not a policy case. This is a constitutional case before the court, and, and you certainly don't have to as a policy matter. Even in criminal cases, this court has upheld vicarious criminal liability without fault or benefit. In the Park and White cases, the court even went so far as to rule that an individual officer of a company can be held criminally liable on vicarious liability principles for the wrongdoing of an agent of which the principal was not aware and from which the principal did not benefit. It seems to me to follow a fortiori that if vicarious liability is appropriate, even in that criminal context, it is appropriate here. Let me simply conclude, since my time is almost to expire, by saying that the principal issue here, I think, is the standards issue. I think that Alabama has developed a rational system for achieving legitimate and very important state objectives. Alabama provides substantially more protection than the common law standards that were well established when the due process clause was adopted and that are still the prevailing standards today. This court should not expand upon that traditional understanding of due process and throw settled state tort law into complete disarray without compelling evidence that the punitive damage awards are fundamentally unfair in the majority of cases and without compelling reason to believe that the legislative process is closed or is incapable of addressing that problem. There does not have to be a constitutional remedy for every social problem. In this case, I think this is a paradigmatic case for judicial restraint, not judicial activism. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Mr. Ennis. Mr. Beckman, you have two minutes remaining.
1: The jury instruction, in, in, in this case, in the common law jury instruction in Alabama, really t- left the jury entirely to its own internal resources in deciding whether or not to punish, and if so, how much. here. And it was recognized, rather forthrightly by Justice Houston of the Alabama Supreme Court, in a subsequent decision to ours, that that instruction was incomprehensibly vague and incomprehensible, as a gauge for the jury to use in measuring the amount of a punitive award. And he noted the consequences of that vagueness in two recent cases that had had come before the Alabama Supreme Court, where he found the facts to be identical and the jury instructions to be identical, and in fact identical to the instruction here. And in one, the jury came in with an award of $2,500,000 and in the other $21,000. In the jury room, when the question came up, shall we punish Pacific Mutual for the agent's fraud, all it had to go on was its own notions of right and wrong, or whether or no. All it was told by Alabama law was that you have discretion. You can if you want. And similarly, when it had decided to make the award and say, we're going to punish Pacific Mutual for the agent's fraud, how much should we award? And all the instructions told them was you 've got discretion it 's any amount you want and suggest that that is exactly the arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement that due process condemns that with response to in response to respondents contention that due process requires no notice of penalty, I suggest that that 's a rather crabbed and narrow view of due process. And, Prior decisions of this Court have, have, have held that the, funda- the fair notice portion's concerns of the ex post facto clauses are included within the funda- concept of fundamental fairness included in the due, proce- due process clauses of both the 5th and the 14th Amendments. Now, if you could imagine a, a
0: statute for example... Thank you, Mr. Beckman. The case is submitted.